This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to an exciting episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, I have a delightful pleasure of introducing to my listeners a good friend and world-renowned wine writer, Dave McIntyre. Now, Dave has been writing about food and wine for 26 years. For the past 12 and a half years, he has written the weekly wine column for the Washington Post, which is syndicated around the world. In 2008, Dave co-founded Drink Local Wine to introduce writers and readers to wines from around here and wherever here happens to be. He's married to his lovely wife, Lily, and they have a daughter, Emma, and two dogs named Ringo and Spicy. But little known to most people in his spare time, Dave is working on becoming a master bread maker and is constantly perfecting his art. I have seen pictures of his sourdough, and I tell you, it is the kind of bread that people write songs about. Dave, welcome to the Vine Guy podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Scott. Happy to be here. It's good to see you and hear your voice. Well, it's good to see you too. Now we're doing this via Zoom, but so nobody's actually going to see us. They are going to hear our voice, which is good because I have a face for radio and well, you're quite handsome, but you know, COVID's done a job on all of us. That's a filter. <laughs> um, so Dave, I want to, I want to kind of start off with a question I've always wanted to ask you about your career path in wine. A lot of my good friends and, and fellow writers have had sort of this aha experience with a wine. Did you have an aha moment? We did, actually. It was early in our marriage, and Lily and I were visiting friends in California. We had one day left on our trip, and our friends said, what would you like to do? And we kind of shrugged and said, how about Napa? So they called around to get some ideas from friends of theirs who were really into wine. And we went and spent the day up in Napa Valley, and this would have been in August of 1988. And you know, for a guy who had gone through school drinking jug wine, cost cutter jug wine from Kroger, um, this was a bit of a revelation. You know, we went to Robert Mondavi and then we went to um, Inglenook, which is now Nibong Coppola, of course. And we were having this tour on this very historic building and the tour guide was very, um, energetic and into it and very entertaining and promising us a tasting when my friend said, Oh, we got to go. We've got an appointment down the road. So I was a little bit disappointed, but the appointment down the road turned out to be a little place called silver Oak. It was the four of us and one other couple with, I actually don't remember who the woman was who, who gave us the tour and the tasting, but the glasses were humongous. The wine was rich and opulent. And at that point cost a whopping $25 a bottle or something. And Lily and I sort of looked at each other and said, this is pretty cool. So we got, we had our aha experience visiting wineries. So when we came home to DC, we started visiting local wineries. And that's how we got into really following the, the local wine scene here in Virginia and Maryland. And we went to uh, wine stores in D.C. on Saturdays. We didn't have any kids yet, so we didn't have you know, anything really to tie us down on the weekends uh, or keep us busy, I should say. So we would do we called it the, uh, the Stations of the Vine pilgrimage every Saturday. 
you know, you know how that is. By the time you get to the fourth store, you're going, wow, I'll take a case of this stuff. It was a lot of fun. And we just listened to people and met people and talked to people. It was just a lot of fun. It's amazing how many times I've gone to a wine shop and put on wine goggles and then opened that case when I got home and went, what was I thinking? <laughs> or what was I drinking? You get, some interesting, <laughs> you get some interesting bottles in the collection that way. Absolutely. So what got you started, though, in writing? Where did you where did you start your career? Well, at that point, um, I was working as a reporter in one of those uh, trade publication houses that Washington, D.C. revels in, um, you know, writing the, the type that would go to a congressional hearing and stay to the bitter end and, and quote every witness in, in the, the newsletter article that you write. And writing about wine became a way to learn about it. So I just started pitching articles and uh, writing a little bit on the side. And it was actually several years later when I f had my first article, professional article published, was in the Washington Post food section, but it wasn't about wine, it was about spices and uh, how world politics affected the availability of spices. So if, you, if you've heard of Penzi Spices and Bill Penzi, um, I interviewed him for that story. And he, at that point, the U.S. was just recognizing Vietnam uh, diplomatically. And he was all excited about getting Vietnamese cinnamon, which hadn't been available before. And, you know, he, he told me some other things like, oh, they couldn't get Turkish oregano after Chernobyl for a while. Or they, oh, wow. you know, <laughs> he had trouble getting Kashmiri saffron because there's a war going on, you know, or rub sage from Dalmatia. That was during the Balkan War. So, you know, that our, our Western exploration was driven um, in some measure by a hunt for spices. So it was a way to sort of tie that history in. And uh, that was the first article I ever had published. And then when did you start writing professionally about wine and, and what was the publication? My first real wine gig was for a website called Sidewalk.com, which nobody remembers now unless they wrote for it. Nobody really knew about it then either. Uh, it, was, oh, no. it was Microsoft's <laughs> attempt to develop content and not just software. So this would have been, this started in 97. And I did a weekly wine column for two years. Uh, the editor for Washington DC sidewalk was Tom Sietzema, who is now the restaurant oh, yeah. critic for the Washington Post. He would do the restaurant reviews and um, at that point, I don't know if I'm telling secrets out of school or something, but he he filched the wine list and, and give it to me and I'd rate the wine list for him. We, it was one of the first reviews that had the actual reviews of the wine lists because they weren't online at that point. Unfortunately, Sidewalk didn't last. Bill Gates got tired of it. Nobody had invented the banner ad yet, so they didn't know how to make money off of a website. But then I started writing for other um, publications. There was a website called winetoday.com that the New York Times company did out of the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. I did several articles for them and for Wine Enthusiast magazine and uh, just sort of bided my time. I was hoping, you know, the, the, the ideal gig for me was the Washington Post wine column, and that's what I was hoping for. And I got the chance to do that starting in October of 2008. Well, Dave, I have to tell you that I've been a, an ardent fan of 
your writing for a long time. And I love following you in the Washington Post. And please don't tell anybody over there, um, but you are the only and sole reason I subscribe to that newspaper. <laughs> so, and by the way, you are a rare breed these days. There are not many full-time, what I would consider to be full-time wine writers for national newspapers. I, I can think of you uh, and Eric Asimov uh, up in the New York Times. Am I missing someone else? There's Letty Teague in the Wall Street Journal. Oh, right, right. Esther Mobley in the San Francisco Chronicle. Okay. Um, they are all staff. I'm freelance. Um, there are a few others, I think, still writing at least regular columns for smaller papers around the country, um, but I'm not sure if they're particularly weekly anymore. But admittedly, admittedly, you are a rare breed. Yeah, it, it, it has become a smaller market. Right, but at the same time, of course, you have the democratization of wine writing through blogs and, and social media as well. So there are a lot more wine writers out there, but they're, they're fewer at major newspapers. Good point. And there's not time in this podcast, but I think there might be a part two in your future, because I would like to go down the rabbit hole one day with you about social media and wine blogging, because I think it would be a fascinating conversation to have with you. So keep that, you know, keep that on we'll your try back it offline burner. and then see if we can remember it later. <laughs> After a few good bottles, I doubt we'll remember anything. So, Dave, you mentioned earlier on in the podcast, or I should say I mentioned in your introduction that you co-founded Drink Local Wine. And I love that you said from around here, wherever here happens to be, you have been very, very vocal and an important person in the local wine movement. Do you actually currently have a favorite wine region in North America? I'm just curious what you're discovering these days. Obviously, I, I do have several. Um, I mentioned my home wine regions here, Virginia and Maryland, that are very interesting, exciting. There's a lot of great wine being made here. And the growth isn't as explosive as it was five or 10 years ago. But um, every time I turn around, I'm thinking, wait a minute, what winery are they talking about? That's, that's another one I have to go check out. So and th those are my sentimental favorites. Um, obviously, since we had our Vinus Epiphany in Napa, I love going back to California. Um, Oregon, Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley is, is kind of the, my um, soul drink. It's when, when, if I'm depressed or feeling melancholy, and I just want to get emotional. I, I tend to look for an Oregon Pinot Noir because I just, I just feel a, a, almost a, a special connection uh, to those wines. I think one of the more exciting regions in North America would have to include the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia. I've been there twice in recent years. Um, fascinating, absolutely beautiful region with some great wines. Niagara, Michigan around uh, Traverse City, the old Mission Peninsula and Leelanau Peninsulas, some beautiful wine being made there. So what are the wines up in Canada that, that they're making that you're so fond of? And actually in Okanagan, I, I was expecting a lot of Riesling but, uh, and, and late harvest Riesling or ice wines, but there really wasn't that much. There were some very good reds 
uh, very good Cabernet Francs, a couple of good Pinot Noir, um, some wonderful Chardonnay. The, the Okanagan Valley actually stretches about a hundred miles. Um, and it, the Southern part of it is right at the Washington border. And it's actually kind of desert like, I don't know if it, they call it a desert. I don't know if um, a meteorologist would technically agree with that, but it's very dry and warm at that point. It's Cabernet country, actually. And further north, you get into the cooler, wetter part right around uh, Okanagan Lake, and you can get some Pinot Noir and Pinot Blanc and, and Chardonnay that are just gorgeous. Wow. Well, okay. It's now on my bucket list. What about in... Uh... In the United States, is there any wine region that you haven't been to yet that's kind of on your, your list to check out? Unfortunately, there are several that I haven't been to that I've only been able to check out uh, from home or at certain tastings. I'd really like to explore New Jersey. I've had some very nice wines from New Jersey. And, what exit? Uh, <laughs> that I'm not sure. I haven't done the road trip planning yet. <laughs> you know, once, once we're allowed back <laughs> out of the house, New Jersey would be on, uh, on, on the list. Uh, I need to expand a little bit into Pennsylvania. There are some wineries up there that I've been wanting to, to visit. Um, the one in, up in Vermont that everybody talks about, La Garagiste, uh, haven't had a chance there yet either. Well, I will tell you that uh, I double-dogged you to come to Utah because I just found out recently that there is a vineyard in southern Utah right around St. George. So if you want to fly into Salt Lake, I will pick you up, my friend, and we'll head on down there and see what that's all about. I think that could be a lot of fun to see what they're doing down there. And you're within reach of the uh, Snake River in Idaho. Are you? Yeah. 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 It's absolutely beautiful. So, uh, and speaking of beautiful and rivers and climates, I understand that climate change is a very important issue to you. And I'm just curious, what is it about climate change that's really got your attention right now? Well, I find it fascinating because wine is kind of, um, it's, it's a bellwether of climate change. I think we've, we've been hearing about it for a few years that, you know, Germany is getting more consistently ripe with their Riesling. So they're having good year in succession now more reliably like you know 30 years ago it might have been two or three vintages in a decade and now it's more like seven six or seven that are really high quality because it's getting warmer but now in the last few years i think we've really been seeing more dramatic effects i remember asking a bordeaux winemaker um, about a decade ago if he's seen climate change he goes oh yes i love climate change but i want it to stop i don't want to be making claret in england and um, now, of course, you see, you know, the Brits are making very nice bubbly up there on the, the soils, because the chalk soils that they have in southern England, but they're getting consi more consistent weather to do that. And what we're seeing now, I think that's really interesting is the question of how will our wine as we know it change over time? You've got Bordeaux officially allowing new grapes to be um, planted and grown and eventually even put into certain, uh, into some of the wines, because what's happening is the Merlot, especially as an early ripening grape, is really being threatened by the rise in temperatures. So 
you have a, the way one Bordeaux maker more recently um, phrased it to me is they have a question. Well, what is Bordeaux? It is Bordeaux a blend of the five grapes we're accustomed to? Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, and um, Malbec. Or is it a style of wine? Is it a fresh uh, wine with good acidity? Well, you might not be able to have both in the future. If the, the weather climate changes continue the way they are, you're going to have bigger, flabbier wines in Bordeaux with those grapes. So if you want that style, if you define it as that style, you're going to have to use different grapes. So they're, they're allowing other grapes to be planted in experimental vineyards to see how they take to the Bordeaux climate as, it's, as the climate is evolving. Dan Petrosky of Larkmead is doing the same in Napa with the same right. question, thinking that Napa might, within 10 or 20 years, might not be as suitable for Cabernet Sauvignon as it has been. And then, of course, with climate change, too, we saw, we've seen it very dramatically the last few years with all the wildfires. And that's uh, you know, obviously a catastrophic and immediate effect. But I think if, if somebody really wanted to document climate change, they should consult vintners around the world and ask to see their harvest logs and their vintage logs and you know, their books where they recorded temperatures and everything. You get firsthand data right there. And I love, too, that there are other winemakers. And, and I had actually Dan Petrosky on the podcast about a year ago when he did talk about planting different grape varieties in Napa as an experiment to see, you know, if they could get out ahead of what's coming down the pike with respect to climate change and uh, other vintners. And you and I both know Julia Jackson of the Jackson uh, family of wines, of course, and, and her project Grounded, which right. I am really thrilled about. I'm actually on her advisory board now and excited to see some of the work that Julia's doing. And Adrian Bridge of Taylor Flatgate, uh, the Taylor Partnership in uh, Portugal, is doing the Porto Protocol, which is trying to get other wineries and and wine regions involved in the actions against climate change, too. So the, the, the industry is very aware of it and very active on it. I think it's great. I really do. And I hope, I really do hope that we do get as a, as a species, as human beings, we can get out in front of this and try to, and right now I think we've got the tiger by the tail, so to speak. And I hope that there's a way to, to tame it. I, I don't know. I don't know what's in the, the future of it. It almost feels like talking about wine and climate change isn't critical. But Dave, the way that you said it's the canary in the coal mine really puts it into perspective. And I think that's yeah. a, a great way. Yes, we drink wine, and but we also are very cognizant of what's going on in, in the vineyards and in agriculture around the world. So well said. So let's, uh, let's jump into something that is familiar ground to you, because you do write this wonderful column about wine. And one of the things I love about your column, Dave, is you don't just review wine. You review the, for lack of a better word, the culture around whatever wine you're reviewing. And I just think that's really cool. And you have a different way. I mean, I use, when I'm reviewing wine, I have a tendency to talk about wine in probably terms of more traditional descriptors. I love the way that you talk about wine. And I'm just wondering, what advice do you have for consumers or new or people that are sort of new to the wine world in terms of when they're tasting wine and when they're buying wine? 
Well, first of all, for for new wine lovers and, and for people who come to me and say, I don't know how you can get all those flavors out of wine. <laughs> it's it, it, it's a logical question because, you know, the, no. Do they really? Yeah. Do they really put cherries in wine? <laughs> no cherries in there. <laughs> Is it all in your mind? Well, yes and no. There are obviously somebody could break down the chemistry of a glass of wine and say, well, it has these phenols or these esters or whatever that are similar to what's in a cherry. So that's why you taste like cherry. A lot of it though, I think is, it really is subjective to us and suggestive. And I urge people to just use their imagination and pay attention to what you're drinking. You know, don't, don't come to me and say, oh, I had a really nice wine last week. And I say, well, what was it? And they, oh, it had a blue label. It was white. Yeah, it was a dog on the label. <laughs> right. Something like that. But, you know, pay attention to not just your wine, though, but everything around you. You know, I was one of these guys who just went through life. And if it, it kind of, you know, OK, yeah, this is fine. I'm here, but I'm I'm moving on or whatever and not really paying attention. But once I really got into wine, I started noticing things around me a little bit more. I, I started stopping and smelling the flowers, for instance, or noticing the this, this smell of uh, the rocks on the path after a rain in, in springtime, noticing the, the aromas of, of boxwood bushes at night, you know, uh, when they give off that wonderful musky smell. And yes, you can you can find those suggestions in a wine glass, and you, it really helps to, for that to just sort of open up your imagination. You know, now I, I, I kind of joke that oh, in, instead of the, the, the honeysuckle bush on the other side of our our fence in our neighbor's yard, when I smell that, I'm thinking oh, Viognier. But that's that's because I'm. I'm fixated so much on wine but that's the sort of associations that we can make and and as far as is buying wine there's some very simple advice that i keep trying to drive home to, to folks the best thing to do is to get to know your retailer if you have a favorite shop it's near your office or near your home not that you have to go there all the time but you know go there regularly Talk to the salesperson, talk to the owner of the shop. Probably everybody who works there has tasted most, if not all the wines, if it's a small independent retailer, and they'll know it. And tell them what you like. Not that you had a wine with a blue label with a dog on it, but the, the, what you like about this wine, or take a picture of the bottle, now that we all have smartphones with cameras, and show, I, I had this wine the other night, I really liked it. Do you have something else like it? And you'll get to know, you'll learn more about wine, you'll learn more about what's in the shop. And if that retailer is worth her salt, she'll get to know you and know your taste. And at some point, as soon as you walk in the door, she'll say, hey, I've got something over here that I think you'll like. And that's, that's a wonderful relationship. Another thing is for imported wines, look at the back label and make a note of the importer. Is the, the labels all have to say the, the name of the importer. And if you like a wine that, say, uh, is uh, vineyard brands or imported by Winebow or any other company, or if, hopefully if you're in an area like Washington, D.C., there are so many small importers like 
Red Wolf or Artisans and Vines and things like that with small portfolios. But if you like that wine, look for another one from that importer because you know, there, there's at least some similarity. But also tell your retailer and your importer, if you meet them, which wines you don't like. Right. You know, That's just as important. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's an exploration that really can last a lifetime. It can be expensive, um, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> well, it's only expensive when they see me walk into a wine shop and they say, hey, Scott, I've got something for you. <laughs> It's nice to know, Dave, I'm not alone in terms of looking at things around me and then not not actually describing them as they are, but describing them as wine. We we recently visited a dairy farm for a cheese tasting and I walked into the barn and I went, oh, Roan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm not alone. <laughs> what about for experienced wine lovers? You got any advice for them? Well, I try to fight cynicism with myself and others um it's it's easy to get cynical and sort of stick to your favorites you know one of the things i hear all all the time is all it really matters is that the wine is delicious well okay yes but what are some of the other things that we that we could think about when we're buying wine one of my bugaboos you know we were talking about climate change well what can we do as wine lovers, for instance, to do our little part. You know, a lot of people nowadays, it, it, we're accustomed to buying organic food. Look for organic wines, made with organic grapes, made with sustainable viticultural practices, or biodynamic. Those are some of the words that you'll see on labels that indicate that this winery is trying to do eco-friendly or environment-friendly farming. Another thing I look at is those big honking heavy bottles. I really hate those heavy bottles that. Yeah, we call them bar fight bottles. Yeah, you really want to hit somebody over the head with them, I guess. But for one thing, I don't like them because they're, they're, they're expensive. The winery has paid a dollar or something more for that bottle over a lighter bottle because they think it will impress me, which means I don't, you know, they think I'm an idiot. I don't know. But if whatever they paid for that bottle, I'm paying three or four times as much more for that wine because of that, that once it goes through the system and there's markup after markup. The other thing, of course, is carbon footprint. A lot of wine actually has a, I won't say a heavy carbon footprint related to other agricultural products. But a large part of wine's carbon footprint is, is I believe, in, in two factors. One is glass, and the other is refrigerating the wineries and the, the warehouses, probably. But transportation, you know, these glasses, they're transported empty, they're filled, they're transported again. So heavier bottles, obviously, is a, is a slightly higher carbon footprint. So I think we're going to see more Hopefully, we'll see more good quality wines, not necessarily your first growths or your Grand Cru's, in boxes or in cans, which are very recyclable. Another thing we can do, of course, is be careful about recycling. And I, I went to the Montgomery County Recycling Center a year before last and had a tour and got some advice um, for what a wine lover can, can look for in the recycling. And 
glass, unfortunately, is not that recyclable. Um, clear glass does, but get recycled, but most bottles aren't clear, they're colored. And a lot of that glass just gets sort of smashed up and put in a pile and then taken away to be disposed of or melted down or something. But clear glass is more recyclable. Also, a simple thing, take the screw cap off the bottle and throw it in the bin too, because what, if it's- What's off, a screw cap, Dave? Oh, come on. <laughs> because because <laughs> if it's still on the bottle, it's just going to get in, in, in mixed up with the glass and, and pollute the glass. That's a good point. That's a very good and point. Even, and even the bag in the box isn't perfect because the advice was rip the bag out of the box. It's not recyclable. Throw it in the trash, throw the box in the recycling bin. You know, the other thing that I try to do is when I'm either going to a store or I'm getting wine shipped to me, I ask them not to use the traditional styrofoam inserts. Um, we try to steer more towards the car, uh, the cardboard inserts. Absolutely. Just, you know, my little part, just one of the things that, you know, we, we try to do and, and pay attention to. But when we do get them, we actually do take them to the recycling center and put them in a specific bin where they do recycle styrofoam, or at least they say they do. So I hope yeah. they do. Well, Dave, I have to say, this has been wonderful. I love the advice that you've given. Again, I love your column, thewashingtonpost.com. But now, of course, it's my favorite time of the podcast where we get to find out what's in your glass. I decided to go with the regional theme today. So I have three wines open, which is, you know, normal operating <laughs> procedure. Right? For, for the record, I'm off work today. So I have Early Mountain Intention from Virginia. This oh, cool. is a new yeah. high-end white wine. It's a blend of Petit Mensing, which is a great grape in Virginia, and Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, so you may, I, I wanted to just for two seconds, tell our listeners about Petit Mincin, because I think unless you're really from that area around Virginia, a lot of people have never heard of that yeah. grape. And it's one of the exciting things about getting to know your local wine industry, because you'll find stuff that you're not going to find anywhere else. Petit Mensing has been popular in Virginia now for about, I want to say 15 years, but it's really caught on in the last few. It's a grape from southwestern France where it's it, you don't really hear about it much. It goes into a regional blend called Jurançon, which is mostly its sister grape called Gros Mansin, the, the fat one as opposed to the little one. They started growing it in Virginia because they were looking for grapes that would be resistant to the humidity here. And the, uh, the humidity leads to downy mildew and other problems with, with ripening the grapes. It really caught on. It's a white grape with high acid, but also high sugar. So it can be made into a wonderful dessert wine or it can be fermented dry. So for years you had, you know, winemakers trying to figure out what they wanted to make with it. And then suddenly a couple of them said, well, here's my dry version. And everybody just sort of went, wow, this is really, really delicious. So and it is, it, it really is. It, it really is. So this is early mountain. They do make petite men saying this is a new um, high end white that, that they've introduced. It's fairly expensive, but it's meant to age. But early mountain is a winery that is just really, I think, 
doing a great job and going gangbusters. Um, the other wines I have open actually are from Colorado. I have a, um, which is a region we didn't mention, but um, it's a, another one to go to and to really to explore if you're ever in Colorado, because you might not find the wines much outside of the state. But this winery is called Red Fox Cellars. It's in the Grand Valley AVA, which is over on the western side of the Rockies, near the Utah border. It's a Nebbiolo. So I haven't had many Nebbiolos. Uh, I think well, this is certainly the first I've had from Colorado, I would say. Okay, cool. So what, what year is the Early Mountain? What is it called? Intention. Intention. 2017? Yes. Cool. Can you just give uh, our listeners a, a brief description of the wine? Or did you drink it all? Sure. No, almost. <laughs> <laughs> we opened it last night. We had it with some seafood. It was delicious. I love the color. Yeah. it's. Um, I don't know if you can tell uh, the souvenir glass from our favorite um, wine auction. There we go. It's beautifully aromatic. I think you're getting this sort of um, peach blossom, very ripe tangerine or nectarine, I should say, um, aromas to it. I think the Sauvignon Blanc kind of keeps it in check a little bit uh, because Petit Mansang can really just explode from the glass in terms of its aromas. There is evidently some oak on this. They've got, um, they, they've got some structure there from oak. I just find it beautiful and it should, I would think, last a few more years, certainly in bottle and continue to evolve. And the, the Nebbiolo I have open is um, actually, I'm really impressed with it too. It's, it's lighter in color because Nebbiolo is a lighter red. It's not one of those opaque reds that you'll find uh, like Cabernet Sauvignon sometimes. It has also some oak I can smell on the nose, but it also has a sort of an earthy, truffly um, aspect to it. And oh, I love those, that. And those cherries. <laughs> those cherries. I don't know how they got them in there, but I'm sure glad <laughs> they do. <laughs> yeah. So, Dave, what, uh, what's the vintage on the Red Fox Cellars? 2017 as well. 2017 as well. By chance, are any either of those wines nationally distributed, or are these ones where... You know, by golly, I'm, I happen to be driving through Colorado and I'm seeing this on the wine shelf kind of thing. I think that's pretty much it. Um, obviously, you can you might be able to buy them online now. One of the things of the pandemic, I think, is we're getting more used to buying wine online and having it shipped to us. That channel for wine sales certainly expanded over the past 12 months. But yeah, th this is something you really kind of have to seek out because you wouldn't even know these wineries. You know, it's like the old commercial for uh, a real estate magazine. I never knew those homes were there. Wouldn't hear about these unless you did some sleuthing around or you, were, you stumbled on a, a restaurant wine list that believes in supporting local and you find them there or at a, or at a local store as you're driving through, like you said. Well, I think we're all very lucky that you have taken this on as something to write about in your wine column, uh, that you started the Drink Local Wine Movement. And I have to tell you, David, I've learned a lot from you. I really have. I, you know, I've been writing uh, about wine, as you know, probably about 22 years now. 
and you and I developed a relationship very early on. You mentioned Oregon, and I can't have an Oregon Pinot Noir without thinking about our dinner together at the IPNC uh, all those years ago and how, how we got a little sloppy and fell in love that night. And then there was also the night in uh, Dry Creek. But, you know, we'll, we'll let listeners listen to that another time. But, Dave, you've been a great influence uh, in both my wine drinking habits and my career. So I want to thank you for that. I, before I let you go, and I was just on somebody else's podcast, and they blindsided me with this question. So I'm going to blindside you Uh-oh. with this question. <laughs> Not one you were expecting. But I love the question so much. And nods to Natalie, you know who you are. Thank you for letting me use this question. If you could have any wine with any person living or dead, what would the wine be and who would it be with? That's a, that's a great question. I, 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 I want to propose maybe two answers. The first, a um, little immediate and personal, because a, a friend of mine whom I had the pleasure of getting to know over the past eight years or so, passed away last week. And that was the British wine writer, Stephen Spurrier. Right. right. So even though I had several meals and judged contests with him, I'd like to have the opportunity one more time to, to have a, a, a glass with him and, and maybe his friend, Michael Broadbent, who passed away a year ago this week, um, whom I never had the, the pleasure to meet more historically I, I think I would say Thomas Jefferson, and I'd like to take him a bottle of Virginia wine from today and show him. Interesting. Because I think he'd be proud and, and show him that he was right. So for our listeners, you know, Thomas Jefferson, we consider sort of the father of Virginia wine. And almost every article you read about Virginia wine by somebody who's writing their first article about Virginia wine, at least begins with or mentions or harps on the theme that Jefferson planted grapes at Monticello and never made a bottle of wine. And golly gee, now they're making good wine in Virginia. But it's become a bit of a trope. And I was guilty of it too, 20 some years ago when I first started writing about Virginia right. wine. But it, it's also, it, you know, it's, it's true. And the, the wine industry, especially around the Charlottesville area, the Monticello AVA and the Monticello Wine Trail, is um, very conscious of the Jeffersonian legacy um, about it. I think he, he would like to know that people are really making world-class wine there now. I have to say those are two absolutely wonderful choices. And I think that uh, I think the world will miss Stephen Spurrier and everything that he created in terms of the wine revolution uh, in the judgment of Paris all those years ago. And of course, Thomas Jefferson for kicking the, kicking the can up the road, I shall say, in terms of starting the Virginia wine. And it was that Paris tasting, excuse me. It was that Paris tasting that galvanized a lot of regions and countries to really invest in and explore and to make world-class wine. Well, Dave, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much, genuinely, from the bottom of my heart for taking the time today to to be with me. Well, thank you. This has been a pleasure, too. And uh, we miss you here in Washington. Oh, I'll be back. I'm like a bad penny. I'll keep coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. 
This episode was produced by Sarah Beth Hensley, and the music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my One of the Week shows every Friday on WTOP and WTOP.com. And don't forget, do good, drink well. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.